If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but that brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither do sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Dear Lord, today as we look at what your word says, I pray that you would help me to say only what needs to be said and not to go further. Lord, I pray that you would guide the words so that they would be edifying to one another and glorifying to you. Lord, most of all, I pray that today we would hear a word from you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a society where we have ambulance chasers everywhere. We have lawyers. In fact, we have over a million lawyers in our country. Every time you turn around, there's a lawsuit. In fact, I bet we have a whole lot of lawyers in the room right now, but I'm not going to make you raise your hand because I don't want you to admit that, uh, that you have a law degree as we're talking about not going to court. And so... Here we are in our society, and here we come to a passage of Scripture, and often you may be thinking, why is it that we come to chapel five days a week, and more often than not, guest speakers come in and people talk, and it's all about the gospel, and it's all about the gospel. Don't you understand that we're saved? Well, here's a passage for you then. You say, how do I live the Christian life? How does the Christian life affect me in a practical daily basis? Here is a passage that as a believer and as believers, this affects us in daily life. And this is a passage that you don't hear preached that often. 1 Corinthians 6, the first part, this has three different sections. The first section of what I want to talk to you about is basically this. Paul says to them in this passage, don't go to court with a believer taking another believer before unbelievers. In other words, don't sue your brother. Don't sue a brother in Christ. He gives them three reasons why you should not sue a brother in Christ because they've misunderstood some things. The first misunderstanding they have is where the church is. It's the relationship of the church. The eschatological relationship of what the church is gonna do, the relationship of the church to the society. The second misunderstanding it has is the attitude of the believer towards other people. And then the third misunderstanding is the difference that the gospel makes. And so we're gonna look at those three differences and we're gonna walk through this and hopefully have a little bit of fun as we go through. Here's the first point. The first point is the standing of the church and it comes here in chapter six, verse one, where he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Now, in this very first chapter, this very first verse, what you see here is if you have a grievance, if you have a pragmatic matter, if you have a practical matter, and you take it, and do you dare go to law before the unrighteous? Now, is this saying that every judge out there is an unrighteous judge? No, it's not. It's just saying that they're not a believer. They're not Christians. They're not inside the church. And so it's not saying that all judges are bad. In fact, there may be cases where an unsaved judge, according to the law, can make a better decision than a saved judge because he has a better knowledge of the law, a better understanding of logic, something of that matter. And so it's not saying that they're not as smart, not as intelligent. It's just saying they're not saved. And what he's saying here is, why do you take something before the unsaved instead of the saints? Now, if you come from an unchurched background or from a Catholic background, you may be wondering, what's the word saint there? Where do I find a saint? Is there a Saint Thomas anywhere around here? No. Is there a Saint Mary anywhere around here? That's not what it means. What the word here, saint, means is a believer, a follower of Christ, the elect, The actual word is agios, which means holy, set aside, set apart. Once we are elect, once we are saved, then what we are is we are the saints. It does not mean the New Orleans saints. That's not where we're going, all right? It's the saints, meaning the members of the church, the elect, the redeemed, those who are saved. Why would you take a matter and why would you dare take a matter? Now, here Paul kind of speaks my language. Anybody out there like a double dog dare you? Anybody like me? If somebody says, if I want somebody to do something, the first thing I'll do to them is I say, I dare you. If that's not going to work, the second thing I would say to them is, I'll double dog dare you. And if that doesn't work, I'll say, oh, I knew you were too chicken to do it in the first place, right? Now, in my younger days, when I wasn't quite as old and fragile as I am now, if you double dog dared me, it was going to happen one way or the other. We were finding a way to make it happen. Here, Paul's just challenging them. He's having fun with the text, and he's saying he dares to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints, and then he's going to ask this question. Now, this question comes up three separate times. Or do you not know? And then in verse three, you'll see again, do you not know? And then you'll see later on in the text in uh, chapter, in verse nine of uh, chapter six, do not be deceived. Or he starts verse nine there, or do you not know? So three times he's asking these people, do you not know? Now, first Corinthians, we've walked through it. You understand that all throughout here, he's been talking about the wisdom and the wise and the people who think they know everything. And here, Paul is just taking that knife and he's just needling it into them. He's just pushing their buttons. He's saying to them, you think you're so wise. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And he's just jabbing it right into them just to to irritate them a little bit. Do you not know? And look at what the first one says, that the saints will judge the world. There's your question. And if we're going to judge the world, then why are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, what does trivial cases mean? There's some controversy about what this actually means. Does it mean a financial matter? Does it mean a small claims court matter, as some would have it? There's a parallel statement right after this that helps explain what it means. In verse 3, it says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So how much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so some would argue that trivial matters are matters pertaining to this life because he comes right back and he gives you a follow-up statement that says, here are trivial matters. Trivial matters are matters pertaining to this life. I think it probably has something to do with financial remuneration. 
They've been cheated. They need something financial. They're taking their brother to court. Instead of getting what's fair, they're even taking their brother to court and trying to swindle them out of something to gain more. And so you immediately recognize that the greediness of what's taking place here, the fact that they're taking their brother to court to try to gain this financial possession is not right. And so it says to them, do you not know you will judge the world? Now, that's also important for us to understand because that relates to the standing of the church. If you're a believer out there, that means you're going to judge the world. If the believers are going to judge the world at the end times, why is it that we would take a small trivial matter instead of the people who are going to judge the world to people who judge temporal things? And then he adds to it in verse 3, do you not know we're going to judge angels? Now, I don't know exactly what all this means. But what I do know it means is is that if we're going to judge the angels and the believers who are going to judge to that degree are the ones that should be making the decisions over these trivial matters, not the judges in a secular law court. If you're going to judge the angels, how much more then should you be the one judging matters pertaining to this life? So in verse four, it says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And again, that's the first point here. They misunderstand the standing of the church. You see, once you have been redeemed, once you are elect, once you are part of the church, one day at the end of everything, at the end of this temporal, trivial life, at the end of all of this, we're going to have an eternal judgment and believers are going to be part of that judgment as we judge the world, as we judge the church, not because we're somebody special, but because we're in Christ and Christ is the ultimate judge. And because we've been united with him, then we will at that point in time have some relationship to the judging that takes place. Those who have no standing in the church. Again, the unrighteous. That's what he's saying here. Those who are not believers. And then in verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. Now you remember back in chapter four, he said, I say this not to your shame when he was correcting them about their pride. But when he comes to this part about taking matters to the court, he says, I say this to your shame. He intends to shame them. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough? Oh, and you know, this just hurts them as they look at that worldly wisdom and as they think they're so intelligent, and Paul here says to them, is there no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? But brother goes to brother, and that before unbelievers. You know, here's a case of where Paul's saying to them, is you're asking the wrong person. You've got a situation in Corinth, much like you had in Athens, and in, in Athens it was said that, that everybody was a lawyer. All the citizens were lawyers because they were so litigious in how they would participate. We're very much the same way. Anytime something happens, you have to worry about, are you going to get sued for that? Anytime somebody gets a large sum of money, there's always somebody out there looking to sue them so that they can take the money and get it back. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, not only is there greed, but you're asking the wrong people to solve this. You're taking a matter from the saints of God, from those who are going to ultimately judge, and you're taking that and you're laying it before judges who are of the world, and you're saying to the judges of the world, you decide this case. You ever been asked a question you shouldn't have been asked? You ever had something that was brought to you that really shouldn't have been brought to you? I have. We were doing some decorations over at the house and my wife asked me to choose between fabrics. I can't choose between fabrics. I'm a country boy. I think the prettiest fabric is camouflage. I'm pretty sure we don't need camouflage couches because nobody would be able to see them to sit on them and that would be a bad thing, right? Right? 
And I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be presidential in the nature either if we had camouflage couches. It's like asking me a question and coming to me and saying, what vegetable do you prefer? I'll take the vegetable cheeseburger. And in fact, I'll take the vegetable double cheeseburger, please. That vegetable doesn't exist. Well, don't ask me about vegetables then. I don't want them. That's why I take vitamins. Now I'm going to have my pharmacy faculty telling me vitamins aren't good for you because I saw the blog this weekend. But that's okay. I'll take vitamins and die and go to heaven. I'll be all right with it. (laughs) And so here, what he's saying to them is in a very real way, you're taking something that belongs in the church and you're putting it before unbelievers and it's hurting your witness. It's destroying your witness. He's saying to them, you're asking Duck Dynasty which fork to use at a formal meal. And that's not right. Now, how do we live as believers? We've got to first recognize who the church is. We've got to recognize that once we're part of the church, that's no trivial matter. This is not like going to Costco and getting your Costco membership card. When you're a member of the church, it's an important matter and membership matters and we should take it seriously. And one day we're gonna judge along with Christ. And so when issues come up in the church, we don't immediately take those things and go before the world and destroy our witness. Instead, we take those things and we deal with them inside of the body and inside of the church and we handle them in that case. We gotta make sure that we understand our witness. Now, what Paul is not saying here And often the most criticized portion of this passage when it's preached is they say, oh, this is the problem. This is what leads to the cover-up in the Catholic church when priests molest people. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul has very clearly said in chapter 5, sexual immorality is to be dealt with and is to be dealt with publicly and is to be dealt with immediately. Romans 13 tells us that we come under the laws of this age because the laws are to keep those who are evil in check. They're for our benefit. And so we submit to the rulers and to the authorities. And so I don't want you to misunderstand this and think that 1 Corinthians 6 is some potential cover-up passage. He's not talking about a cover-up. He's not talking about illegal activity. And there are other times when you may be forced to go to court But you have to be wise and take this and look at it. Trivial matters, brother against brother. So here he gives us some some rules. So brother goes against brother. He doesn't say you can't go to court against an unbeliever. Not in this passage. That's not what he says. But now personally, I would ask you to consider the main theme of what he's talking about. If your witness is what's at stake, is it worth going to court against an unbeliever? He's not saying here that you don't go to court in a situation of divorce, but God hates divorce. We know that from scripture. There may be the scenario where you have two believers, at least you thought, and one cheats on another and walks away and runs into a lifestyle of drugs or prostitution or really bad things and there are children involved. And you say, I've got to go to court because I've got to get custody of those children. I cannot allow my children to be with this other person who's living in a sinful lifestyle. And that may be your justification. Paul's not addressing all of that here. He's saying in trivial matters, we don't air our dirty laundry out before the world. You know, there could be a case that we have to go to court to defend the gospel. If religious liberty is at stake and we have to go to court to defend the gospel so that we can have the opportunity to preach freely or to say what the Bible says, then in those type situations, we may have to go to court. So what I want to clearly, or at least as clearly as I can communicate to you today, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is saying, do not take trivial matters against another brother before unbelievers and ruin your witness. Paul's not saying never, ever, ever utilize the court system. 
The first point was the standing of the church. He transitions into a second point. When he transitions into this, it's in verse seven. And he talks about now the Christian mindset. He says to have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? The first point here is that he says, if you have problems like this in the church where you have a brother taking another brother to court, the fact that you're mistreating each other and you're not living in unity as Christians is already a defeat. It's already a loss. It's already a problem. At that point, you've already hurt your witness because you're not a healthy body of Christ. It's already a defeat. You know, I think about a pirate victory. You know what a pirate victory is? If you studied history, it's a victory that costs you way too much for the victory that you actually get. We see this all the time. We see this in sporting events where your favorite team is going up and they've got a big match against another team and they may win the ball game but lose four players in the process and the victory ends up costing them the rest of the season. You see this in business. You can even see this in arguments with people that you care about where you argue so strongly so that you'll win the argument that you in fact do more harm winning the argument than you would have if you just let it go from the first place because you have to win the argument a pirate victory. And what he's saying to them here is he's saying to them, it's already a defeat when you have it. When it takes place, why not suffer wrong? Why not just go ahead and let yourself be wrong? Why not be defrauded? But instead you go to court and you wrong and defraud your brother. You have greed because you go to court and you get a lawyer and you hire a lawyer and you say, I'm going to take them to the cleaners. I want to wipe them out. I want to make sure I get everything I can possibly get out of this. We do in our society. You know, what is it if you find a, a fingernail in your coffee cup or, heaven forbid, a thumb in your chili or whatever the case may be, then you immediately look at that and your thought process is not, let me get that out so I can eat the rest. Your, your, your thought process is, I'm rich. Get the phone out. Take the photos. Call the lawyer. I'm going to be wealthy. You get hurt. Something happens. Somebody else is at fault. What do you do? I'm going to take them to the cleaners. Paul's saying here, when we do that in the church, when we do that brother amongst brother, that we are defrauding and wronging our own brothers. And that is not a Christian mindset. Now, let's be honest. It's not easy. It's not easy for me either. Be wronged. Be defrauded. Don't worry about it. But we know that the scripture is full of passages that tell us do not return evil for evil. If somebody wants your outer, your inner cloak, give them your outer garment also. If somebody wants you to go one mile with them, you go two miles with them. And that's a difficult thing for us to swallow, especially for a guy like me. Somebody wrongs you, what's my first inclination? I'm going to take you out. We're going to have laying on of hands without prayer. I'm going to, I'm going to show you some, some holy Roman jujitsu and, and, and we're going to, we're going to put you in a triangle Trinity chokehold and, we're going we're gonna to get justice here, right? Some of you are there too. You struggle with things like this. But what the gospel does is when the gospel comes into our lives, the gospel demonstrates to us that fairness and justice is not really what we want. Because if we have fairness and justice, we realize that we are so sinful that fairness and justice means con- being condemned to hell for all eternity and separated from God. It's the grace of the cross that offers us salvation. And it's that same grace that he's saying here we should be displaying to our fellow brothers and sisters and that we should even be defrauded or we should be wronged for the gospel. And so when things happen to us and we look out there and we see what's happening and it's negative, we say, here's an opportunity to display the gospel. 
That's not my normal reaction though, is it yours? This is living a gospel-centered life where you wake up every day and you say, today I'm going to live my life in a way that displays the gospel. He says, why not be defrauded? Why not be wronged? We should overcome evil with good. You know, there's another court as well that's not mentioned in here. It's the court of public opinion. How many of you have a Facebook account? Raise your hand. How many of you have a Twitter account? Raise your hand. Which one? I guess that means Facebook's more popular, right? Is Facebook still more popular? Yeah, okay. So for today, Facebook becomes the court of public opinion. Now, don't raise your hand on this one. But how many of you have seen somebody go to Facebook to publicly vent something that has happened to them with another believer? We probably, everybody that has a Facebook account has seen that feed on their wall, right? How many of you have gone to Twitter to update a status and you've done so in anger and you've done so immediately and you just, you type with vengeance in those keys as though they are arrows being shot at another person and you hit enter and you release fury into the internet? Now, this is not exactly what Paul's addressing here, but you have to understand there's some correlation here to the fact that we should allow ourselves to be wronged or defrauded for the sake of the gospel to say we have to have wisdom in what we put out in Facebook. We have to have wisdom in what we put out on Twitter. We have to have wisdom in what we say and how we conduct ourselves, not so that we'll be two-faced, but so that we will be one-faced, gospel-centered in our lives and that we'll understand that what we do and what we say affects our witness for Jesus Christ. He goes to a third point here. The third point is the gospel difference. That's what I've called it. And so you have the standing of the church, you have the Christian mindset, and then you have the gospel difference. In verse nine, he says, or do you not know for a third time? And I'm sure by now, those who think they have wisdom are just fuming. Do you not know that the unrighteous and the word for unrighteous here is the same word that's used in verse one? So he's tying this phrase back to the previous portion where he has discussed the lawsuits. And he says, do you not know that those unrighteous that I discussed in verse one, even though the verses were not in there when he wrote the letter, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those unrighteous people are not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. They do not have standing in the church. Do not be deceived. Now, here's a good warning for us. For us not to be deceived as well. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, what does he say there? All of you? Or some of you. Why in the world does Paul say some here? He's talking to the church at Corinth, right? It's because he understands the same thing I understand. Anytime you get a large group together, you're going to have some people who think they are believers in Christ who have deceived themselves. And so here he's giving that caveat do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Now, when you look at anybody out there with the King James, the new King James, when you look at some of those translations, they use that old word fornicators. We try to make everything sound good in modern society, right? Yeah, don't have premarital sex. As though the only difference and the only thing that makes it wrong is that it's premarriage versus otherwise, it's a timing issue. There's nothing really bad about it. It's just a timing issue. But what the Bible says about it is it's sexual immorality. It's fornication. He says here, the idolaters. Well, boy, doesn't that hit home with all of us? 
Don't we all have times where we take an idol and put it on the throne of our heart so that we're no longer seeking after God, but we're seeking after whatever else it is? Nor thieves, nor greedy. Have we all looked around and coveted and seen things that we would like or taken more than our share to display greed or selfishness? He says, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He also says in there, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now with adultery, we don't call it adultery anymore either, right? Because adultery is too harsh of a word. We've got to glorify it just a little bit. And so we say extramarital sex as though you're, you're getting more or it's a bonus and, and that's not a good thing. It's adultery. And so it's not something that you should try to do. It's something you should never do. And so he says, anything outside of marriage here is wrong. It's adultery. And then here he says in two words, what is put in one phrase in the ESV, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now there are two words here. One of the words that's used in this particular section is malakos. Now, gosh, I don't know how to explain this other than just explain this. That's the passive person in the relationship. The person who is the effeminate one. Now, this word means more than just the passive person in the relationship. This word can also be used in the New Testament for people who are soft or feminine or who are wearing women's clothing or transgender or cross-dressing or things of that nature. And there's also a second word that's combined into this that's the dominant homosexual partner, and it's sometimes translated sodomites. Now, I'm not... I'm not doing anything but preaching the text to you this morning. We can't look at one portion of this list and make any more out of it than another portion of this list. But we also can't overlook one portion of this list and minimize that one portion of the list. So let's be honest right now and say this. If everybody were to raise their hand when the word in the list hit you, we would have to recognize that today sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. That's all of us. That's every last one of us in this room. If you say in this list, I'm not there, then you're a liar. And liar's not in this list, so you may be okay, but there's another list that would catch you too, right? We are all ultimately sinful human beings who have sinned against God. And when he puts the word idolater in there, when he puts the word greedy in there, there are words that catch every one of us. When he puts sexual immorality in there and we look at the full connotation of that and we look upon somebody else with lust in our heart and we realize that here what he's saying to us is it's all of us. All of us were this way. But the great news comes at the end of this passage. And at the end of this passage, he says, but... But you were washed. Now, let me back up before I go there. I focused in on the sum instead of the all. If you haven't changed from that behavior, that's why I used the word sum there. What we see at the end of this passage is not an ending on a negative. It's that's where we were, but that's not where we have to be by the grace of God. That's what we were caught in, but we don't have to stay caught into that by the power of the Spirit in our lives. And so if you're still entrapped in that, if you don't have conviction over your sin, if you're not seeing progress in coming out of your sin and becoming holy and becoming a saint and becoming one of God's children and progressing in sanctification, then that's why you sum there. Maybe you need to check to make sure you're not deceived that you truly have accepted the gospel and believe in Jesus. And in verse 11, he gives it to us here. But such were some of you. 
Now here he gives us three words. But you were washed. That doesn't mean baptism. That means washed with regeneration. But you were sanctified. That means being made holy. The sanctification process as a believer. We never are ultimately sanctified, but through the Christian life, we should grow closer and closer to God. But you were justified, the legal term, declared righteous because of what Christ did on the cross, because we have been united in what Christ did, that God looks down and sees Christ's righteousness and not our sin, and we have been justified just as if we had never sinned because we're united with Christ. And this has happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, a Trinitarian statement to close out our passage. This has happened through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. What's he saying to us here today? Overall, he's saying, live a gospel-centered life. Don't sue your brother. Don't take him to court over trivial matters. When you do such things, you misunderstand the church, you misunderstand the mindset of a Christian, and you misunderstand the difference the gospel makes. So to live a gospel-centered life daily, We've got to recognize we are part of the church of the living God. And one day, eschatologically, we will be reigning with him and we will be co-reigners, co-rulers with Jesus Christ. You have to understand, the Christian mindset is that this life is not everything there is. We don't live for the temporal. We are pilgrims passing through. Eternal heaven is our home and we have an eternal perspective. And you have to realize there's a difference that the gospel makes. Has it made that difference in your life today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray for our students and our faculty and our staff. Father, I pray that you may help us to always live in the power of your word, that we may always allow your word to speak to us and that we may always allow it to guide our decisions. Father, not because we worship the Bible, but because the Bible tells us about you and who you are. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us strength, that you would help us as we go about the busyness of life, not to ever take for granted the great salvation you have granted to us. Father, I pray for grace for those who are discouraged. Lord, I pray that you would put good people and encouragement and sanctify those who are struggling. God, I pray for all of us that you give us wisdom to know how we can best exalt Jesus. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.